1: Hey guys, it's Kayla. Candace is unable to join us today, but we are all still so directionally challenged. Am I right? We thought we'd have it all figured out by the time we were in our 30s, but surprise, we don't. And that's okay. We have an incredible guest for you today, Josh Peck. Not only is his memoir truly compelling and raw and honest and real, but our conversation with him on today's episode is as well. He is one of Hollywood's rising talents making the seamless transition from child actor to leading man. And you have seen him in so so many films, Mean Creek, The Wackness, Red Dawn. You can also see him in the Hulu series, How I Met Your Father, and in the iCarly reboot on Paramount Plus. He's best known for his roles on the Nickelodeon phenomenon, Drake and Josh, for which he received a Kids' Choice nomination. He's lived so much of his life in the spotlight and a lot of his personal journey has been made public and he goes through that and so much more in our conversation. So without further ado, here is our lovely, wonderful conversation with Josh Peck. (laughs) And we are here with Josh Peck. Josh, I am so excited that you are our guest today. I have been singing your praises all morning. Your book is fantastic. And I don't say that lightly. I listen to it on Audible. And it's so lovely because you yourself are a performer. And to hear your inflections and your voice and telling all those stories, it really is compelling. And I have to hand it to you. You go there. You are raw. You are honest. You tell us. You basically bear your soul. And I wonder what that's like writing a memoir. Is it difficult to go there, to go to these places that maybe... You have to bring up and dredge up these memories that you've been trying to, you know, hide maybe for all of these years. And can you talk to us about what that experience is like?
2: Oh wow! Well, first of all, thank you so much, and thank you for listening on Audible. I hope you like lists <laughs> because I, I i i'm an I'm incredible at the letter S. I, I no, it means a lot. And I would say, you know, it's interesting. I've I've lived with my story my whole life, and. Funny enough, the other day, because I, I obviously, and I'm sure we'll get to it, I talk a lot about like recovery and in, in the book and, and being sober for the last 14 years. And I was, I was with some sober friends the other day. And I was like, you know, people are really saying I got raw in this book. Like, they're saying I was very transparent, but like, I, did I say too much? And they're like, no, it's just that you've kind of kept it a secret. Like, you, you did a good job at hiding it. And it's not that I was overly trying to hide it. I just, I grew up in a, I was sort of the last generation before social media. So there was this idea that you kept that stuff hidden. You presented this picture of what you thought, like your, you wanted your public image to be. And now honesty and transparency is so rewarded, especially in a world where we're constantly being fed these curated images from, you know, people's lives and Coachella and everyone's like, gets the good picture in front of the 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 ferris wheel but they don't show them like waiting in line at the porta potty
1: (laughs) wait did coachella just happen i had no idea (laughs) i'm joking
2: (laughs) i guess i I guess so i yeah i I can't believe it either it seems to have just gone under the radar
1: we're recording this right now on the monday after the first week of coachella and it feels like everyone and their mother went to coachella the whole world stopped and it was coachella and you're right josh That's so true that it we only see the curated parts of people's lives, and you were one of the first people on Vine, which obviously no longer exists, but you were really big in social media, but even still, you kept that side hidden. so I think you're right that's why everyone's saying you went there and you went really raw because we all know you and love you and watch you grow up on television and in the limelight, and then for you to be like, "Hey, this is actually what was happening that whole time is really eye opening for us but one of the one of my favorite things about this book is how you talk about your relationship with your mother. I'm a mother myself. I know you are a father of a three-year-old and it's just really thrilling and fun and you tell these fearless stories about the two of you. I just want to ask what made your relationship with your mother what it is today because I know you talk about how you didn't want to grow up and be exactly like her, but they, there were so many things innately in you that were like her. And how has your relationship changed now, today?
2: Well, I, I mean, I agree with you. I, I love being a parent. I find it's like literally the only thing not overrated in life. Like I've been a soul cycle, and I've tried like the it was the croissant donut oh, in Brooklyn. Uh,
1: <laughs> the cronut.
2: The cronut. Done it. I've done it all. And it all sucks. No, it's fine. But it doesn't live up to the hype. But having a kid certainly lives up to the to the hype. Yeah. I mean, my mom and I, I, I sort of like in our relationship to like. Growing up, there were kids who had traditional family systems that I knew of, and it seemed like the parents were upper management and the kids were the employees of this closed corporation. But my mom and I were like a startup because she was a single mom. I was an only child. And the nature of it was we were constantly like pilot and co-pilot. And she was did a Herculean job of making sure that I felt security and deep love and all the things that I, I certainly had no part in just being a kid, but I was sort of forced to step up at a young age. And yeah, I was so much like my mom, you know, and partly because she was sort of an unrealized performer. And she saw that in me, like saw this talent and a little bit, a love, a proclivity for, for enjoying the spotlight. So as soon as she saw that, she like poured jet fuel on it. But also she just like you know she just is a strong beautiful personality a strong jewish mother from from you know new jersey so it certainly felt inescapable at a young age that i would grow up just like her and i also had no image of my father because i never met him to as counterpoint so I think there were certainly times, well into my early twenties, where I was sort of rebelling against what I thought my genetic inheritance right. was.
1: Yeah, that seems to be a theme throughout the book too. Your father, because it's constantly brought up. You are so open about it. You even at one point call it this non-existent relationship with your father. And the most heartbreaking moment is when you say, "Come on, Dad, do you mind if I call you Dad?" And I just had to pause it for a minute and just went, <laughs> oh, because um, I mean, you joke about it, and you clearly have come to terms with it at this point. But how? how? How did that affect you as a child and and how does it affect you on an even deeper level being a father now yourself to a boy?
2: Well, I, I'm interested to ask if I'm asking too much, please tell me. But like when you say how that affect you, affected you, do you have a good relationship with your dad?
1: I do. And I actually am currently pregnant right now with a boy. So I'm like, oh, OK. And I have a girl. So as a mom, I have a girl. And now I'm going to be a mom to a boy. So obviously that changes things. My relationship with both my parents is very healthy, as is my husband's. So that's something that we both have. But we want to make sure that we in turn, have that with our own kids, which is a whole other beast.
2: That's well, first of all, mazel. And now you guys can shut it down. You got w- one of each. You you guys are crushing we'll it. He's not here yet. But, um... <laughs> I'll keep you posted.
1: <laughs> but thanks.
2: <laughs> you know, I find that to be true in a lot of people who are deeply affected by the fact that I never met my dad or what have you is that is is usually because their reference is a great relationship. And they can imagine having never lived without their father. Whereas when I you know, compare that with other friends who either had a fractured relationship with a dad or just didn't know them, and I grew up in New York, you know, a single mom, public school, like it was so diverse, you know, socioeconomically and, you know, uh, just ethnically, like there was just everyone was represented. And so luckily, I certainly wasn't alone. Like There were plenty of other kids who were like, oh, like you never met your dad? I wish I never met my dad and or I never met him either. So it's an interesting sort of thing to contend with. And, I, and it was only in having my son, and, and I think it'll be cool if one day I have a daughter to see what this is like, but it was only in having my son that I had this sort of full circle moment of like, sometimes we don't get the amends we deserve, but we give it to ourselves by not perpetuating the traumatic cycle. And so by being the dad for him that I wanted my dad to be for me, I felt like I was sort of like healing myself.
1: Yeah. You even talk about this one point where you find your half siblings on social or not on Facebook, correct? Yeah. On social media. Yeah. And then finding all these photos of your dad and all of that. How do you feel about And this is just me asking as a parent too, because this is something we always talk about, my husband and I, but how do you feel about sharing your child's life on social media? It's a huge part of what you and I do, obviously, it's a huge part, but then it, you're making these decisions for these younger little people who we, we are not sure how they're gonna feel about it when they grow up.
2: So uh, it's a great question. And I think any public person contends with that once we procreate and make new people. My wife and I, like, Sort of made the decision that once he had a real face, we would not put him on social media. So, right around two and a half is when we eased out of it. And you know, I, I don't have a Finsta, like, I, and I'm a typical proud father who just really wanted to post photos of my kid because I wanted the whole world to see him uh, how proud I was. But I, 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 we made the decision and we've, we've held pretty strong. Like, we, we keep to it 99% of the time over almost, you know, eight to 10 months now and going forward, because I want to give him the privilege of anonymity. And I want him to make the decision when he gets to a certain age. And I don't know what that age is. I think it'll reveal itself where if he's nine, 10, 11, 12 years old and says, dad, I want to come with you to an event, or I want to be like, I took him to kids choice the other day. And it was such a full circle moment. Cause I've been growing up a Nickelodeon kid, I've been going for 20 years to the Kids' Choice Awards and I was able to bring him and use a little bit of that privilege that I get from working for that company to like give him a fabulous time. And my wife held him when I walked the carpet and I just didn't have to include him in that way. And so, yeah, I think it's important to give kids the privilege of anonymity and of privacy and if at a certain age they decide that they want to give that up then you know you make that decision then what do you think
1: yeah that I know. And so that's what we always kind of toil with, because there is this pride as a parent of really wanting to share it with people you love. And so I end up using the close friends part of the app a ton to share my own life, personal life with my daughter and now my son coming. But there are moments where I do share and then I feel this instant regret of, oh, God, should I take it down? Should I not? It's this toil of, you know, what is the right way to do it? And you're right. There is no right answer but I think trusting your gut and just I love what you said about giving them the decision at, a, at an age and, and giving it, it's empowering them to make the decision themselves which is fantastic you talked about Nickelodeon and you were so funny as a kid and you are extremely charismatic even just through the computer right now the charisma just kind of exudes from you and you know it, you talk about how a, a lot of your book is about weight loss too and being identified through you know. I guess being being fat, is that what you would call it? I mean, your relationship with food was complicated. And you talk about it being really as far as you can remember, and how you were 290 pounds as a kid. And not only that, (laughs) you were on television, and being on television and having everyone watch you is is a tall order for a 12 year old. I believe you were 12 at the time, right? Yeah. And I just want to talk about, because you address body, body positivity too in your book and how today is so much better than it was in the 90s. And that wasn't, but that wasn't your experience back then. Body positivity is not something that we just, it wasn't a term that people threw around or did podcasts about or wrote books about. And can you talk to us about what the experience was like back then compared to what you see today? Absolutely.
2: I, I, yeah. To your point, I was chatting with my friend uh, on her podcast, Claudia O'Shree on on the morning toast. And, you know, we talked about uh, both struggling a- as kids and, and as teenagers with weight and how like. Sometimes, and you could see it in people's eyes. Like I would walk into a room, and I would see something trigger in someone's eyes, and and I was like, "It's coming. They're going to comment on my weight." I just knew it. Like they couldn't help themselves, and it almost it was. I would say, if if we're looking at percentages, like two thirds of the time, or maybe even three quarters, it was well meaning, just inappropriate. It was not malicious. A lot of times, people thought, "I believe." in like a less an emotionally evolved way, maybe they don't realize how big they are. Maybe if I shame them, they'll do something about it. And I just remember that being pretty ubiquitous as a kid growing up. People felt like this was open season and that it was lack of self-control. You were slovenly or whatever, Any any sort of these negative attributes that you want to to attach to it. And and I say now, you know, weight is a manifestation of, of different things. Growing up as a kid, I would look at these kids who were my age, 13, 14, and maybe they had a bit of weight on them and they'd whip their shirts off and they'd jump in the pool like it was nothing. And they would date and have fun. And these kids were superstars to me. Like, it's like, how are you able to do this? I'm like putting on two turtlenecks just to go outside. And so I think weight can be a manifestation of a love of life and dining and entertainment and just like enjoying good food. And it's not an issue. For me, My it was a manifestation of, of a lot of discomfort. And food as it is for most of us was my first foray into if I overdid it, it had like a numbing effect. It just would kind of allow me to leave my head. And so I utilized that for as long as I could until it really wasn't working for me anymore.
1: You know, I have to say the way you write about your weight loss, you can tell you did it for you because I mean, there are times when it it would seem like maybe you felt like you had to defend it. But I have to be honest, I I think that once you find out what works best for you and you realize, oh, this is the type of person that I want to be. I think therein lies the difference that when you do it for just you and not for the outwardly effect, it, I think that that is such a huge difference. And you talk about how you felt like you were your best self once you did all that. And I I just really commend the way you write about it. And I think it's a really healthy, wonderful way to for kids to learn about that.
2: Thank you i I you know it was really it was the hardest chapter. My friend Ryan Holiday, who's this brilliant writer who helped sort of advise me on the book, just gave me a lot of notes. It was the one chapter of like i think i don't know what there is seventeen chapters, maybe it was the one where he was like start again, and it was because he said, this is really like the biggest inflection point in your life, and if you hide behind jokes and make light of things, people aren't going to care and you need to write this to the 16 year old version of you where it might make you cry. And so I tried to do that. And also to your point, like, and I say it in the book, like, I'm not trying to talk in hyperbole. Like I know it seems like I'm taking the piss out of myself and I am, but I also just want to say like, I want you to know what my head sounded like at that time, for better or for worse.
1: Right. And I think that's why it's so relatable. And a lot of people, we've all been there at some point in our life. And it's just so nice for someone so public to be so honest. Hey, guys, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back in just a minute. (laughs) They're a triplex protein blend, plant-based proteins that include pea, brown rice, and pumpkin that leave me feeling full. 310 Nutrition also has a hydrate electrolyte drink mix. My favorite is the peach mango flavor. Back. You know, you also talk about this epiphany you had at age 12, where you didn't you realized you didn't want to be broke anymore. You didn't want to live this nomadic lifestyle that you were living with your mom. And I think that must be really difficult as a child to have this your first real world realization and about the adult world around you. You know, you knew entertainment could change this for you. And you talk, can you talk to us about this time in your life? Because that's a huge weight to carry. At 12. I, you know, I don't even know if I knew
2: quite that entertainment could get us out of it. I just remember thinking, yeah, I just, I I just remember thinking I, I was 12 years old. We would sort of vacillate. We'd have these huge swings between a very like middle-class lifestyle and then just like not enough money to buy a slice of pizza. And my mom being the single mother that she was, and she didn't have a college education, but she was like this fabulous entrepreneurial businesswoman. Like sometimes she'd make a couple placements. She was a headhunter. So she make help people find jobs and she'd make a couple placements and she'd be like, babe, we're going, you know, we're staying at Atlantic City for the weekend and we're going to do this. And, or I'm going to, you know, and, or she paid for my bar mitzvah in cash. <laughs> like she. She was, you know, awesome. And then, but then obviously like sales, like most jobs like that, it's not always consistent. And I just remember at 12, having had like my third sort of wave of that, we don't have any money and this sucks. And I hate feeling powerless thinking, you know, if if given the opportunity, if there's something within my power where I can, like if I wasn't an actor, I just think I would have found the job that you can do the youngest possible job to start bringing in money. I know it. I would have worked at the supermarket or whatever, like wherever they let a 14 year old work, I would have been like, I'm in. It just so happened that I did this thing that pays you adult, like grown up salaries. And I was like, oh, even better. How lucky.
1: Right. And, and you talk about how when you did your first movie, it was heaven. It just felt right. And you did a Nickelodeon film by the time you were 12. That basically started your career. Then you went on to the Amanda Bynes show. And this is where you met Drake Bell. And you two are magic on screen. Six months later, you're doing your first pilot. And now you're you're trying to figure out how to... You went from trying to figure out how to save you and your mom from poverty to being a huge TV star. I mean, that's such a huge transition to go through at such a young age. Looking back, does your sentiment change on your experience on that show? And just talk to us about this time in your life.
2: Totally. I mean, I, I, I've said this now, sort of, I try to say it in the book a bit, but what was interesting about our experience, right, was A, it was a kid's show and B, there was no social media. So like, if you're on Stranger Things and it premieres Friday, by Monday, you have 10 million followers. You're massive. But Drake and Josh was watched by kids. A lot of kids. It did well for a kid's show. But it wasn't massive. And a lot of times we would do the show and I would you know work from eight to four and I'd go home and meet up with my best friend Len, who was just going to high school and we'd like watch hockey at our you know in our uh, our apartment complex and so I was like teetering on this very sort of Average life, and then I would get to go do this job that was fantastic. That I, I was I, I was so proud and pleased to have because it's the kind of comedy that I loved. So yeah, it just it didn't seem it didn't seem as special as it is today, and I and it, it didn't seem it's certainly not as big as it is today. Weirdly, because there's no residuals on kids' TV, so they rerun it at nauseum. It's also a good show. Not to give it so much credit, I just mean that as a lot of kids shows have like pretty far out sort of the the basis of the show, what, it, what it's rooted in is something like Wizards or something or superheroes or No Shade on Wizards of Waverly Place. I don't want Selena Gomez to come for me. I love you, Selena. <laughs> She's
1: coming. But like,
2: I, don't I know it? She's thinking about Josh Peck a lot. but <laughs> But it was a family show, right? It was pretty like timeless. And I think that's why... You know, almost 15 years later, I'll still have 10-year-olds come up to me. So, it, I think with social media and reruns and whatnot, over the last 10 years, it's so much bigger than it was when we were filming it. And I think that's lucky for me because I I never had to get too impressed with myself.
1: You talk about searching for an escape through your life and how food worked for a a long time. And then fame was really enticing and really cool. But the alcohol and the pills seemed to numb, uh, unlike any other. And, you know, at one point you were 18. You felt brave enough to, you know, venture out and maybe try a party, kiss a girl, do all these things that you didn't necessarily that you missed out on when you were younger, being on a show and all of that. You talk about how once you started down that path, that it ruined the next four years of your life we have a lot of younger listeners on this podcast that I think may find themselves in similar situations or right at that point right now in their lives. So I would love if you feel comfortable, can you share insight about that time in your life and um, what you wish you would have done differently and how maybe they can take some of this advice and implement it into their own lives?
2: Well, I guess I'll just start off like contextually, if anyone, you know, for most people who haven't read the book, but I, you know, I lost 100 pounds by the time I was 17. I realized that I had the same mind or the same mind in a new body, and that I had used sort of food to sort of numb out to not face a lot of the things that were going on inside. And so when I no longer had food and I discovered drugs and alcohol, it was like, It was just so much more efficacious. It just worked better and it was less calories. And I sort of went on this four year quest. And it was also sort of, it was, it it was sort of spurred by the fact that I felt like I had catching up to do. I felt like I was, I was owed this time to be young and stupid and. To just be messing up because so much of my life up until that point had been so structured. And, you know, there was always stakes to everything I did. And don't mess up your, you know, don't mess up because you'll ruin your career and then you won't be able to support you and your mom. And now I just felt like, well, I got the body I always wanted and now I'm just going to be typical. I didn't want to be special. I wanted to be typical. And it felt like this is what most, you know, college age kids were doing. And, you know, I, I wonder there's all these studies that suggest that they say drugs should be legal because it would take a lot of the criminality out of it. You could tax it. And also they found that people who have a predisposition for drug addiction, they're gonna they whether they were legal or not, they would eventually fall victim to it. You know, much like alcohol, right? Alcohol is legal, and if you're predestined to be an alcoholic, like What can you do? So I don't know to, you know, what I could have told myself then or what I could tell someone listening who has who's predisposed. But what I I would say is, is that try to wait. (laughs) You know, you're you're literally you're considered um, not a minor, but like pediatric medicine is up till 26 years old. You are not a full adult. You're not locked into your twenty-six year twenty-six years old. Your brain is still developing. There's a lot going on. And while I totally understand wanting to be seventeen and lit and drink and crush it, like I get it. But like if somehow you can just push it off. I think you will do far less damage to your brain going forward. That'll have like long-term effects way into like, like you'll be 16. you will be like, why do I always forget things? And it's like, well, you shouldn't have partied so hard when you were 19, but nevertheless. So I, yeah, but I don't know what, what there is to say, like for me, what happened was I had enough data to support that I overdo things that drinking had started out as being fun, then fun with problems and just problems. And enough people had said enough things that had planted these seeds in my head that I always say, like, it, it grew into a true forest, right? So in the moment, I was like, yeah, 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 whatever, pass the joint. But over time, their words would just grow and things. till eventually, when I got into recovery, drinking and using was ruined for me because they were like, your best thinking got you a front row seat here. So why would you trust your brain? right? Like, why would you try to fix yourself with a broken brain? Because your best thinking got you here. So maybe you should take a little bit of suggestion. And that that was it. So that's what I would say. For me, it always came in the form of of suggestion. I would try it. If my life got better, I'd stay at it. If it didn't get better, I'd try something else.
1: Yeah. And it really did significantly change your trajectory and your path. One of my favorite parts about the book is When you, one of your heroes has been Kingsley. Sir Ben. Or Sir Ben Kingsley and you get to do this movie with him and you know they, they always say never meet your heroes but it seems like this was a, a good meeting of your hero story and he gave you this fantastic advice to follow your apostles and it seems like your your recovery is following your apostles you found your group of people and so I you had said it would take you years to understand this. And even as you gave that advice in the book, I thought, well, what does that really mean? How can I implement this in my own life? And can you expand on this and how it how it taking that advice has really helped you in in your life?
2: Sure. I you know, for I I know you mentioned there's some younger listeners. So if you don't know Sir Ben Kingsley, he's an Oscar award winning actor. He's he's in his late 60s now. So, a lot of his best work were was done in the eighties and nineties, but well you know well into present day. but he really came on the scene, played Gandhi, you know he's been in in so many great movies and he's always been a, one of my favorite actors, my favorite actor, so the fact that I was getting my first major part in a movie with with him just made no sense. It's like getting to play your first game with jordan and so you know I asked him for on on the last day of us filming together, I asked him for advice, but what I was really asking for was like the secrets to becoming the greatest actor in history. And he had the nerve to give me like life advice. And he said, well,
1: <laughs> how dare he? <laughs>
2: I know. I just was like, no, no, no. I need to know. Like, I literally, I, I need to be on the fast track to an Academy Award stat. He was like, find your apostles, surround yourself with people who make you better. And if you find yourself in a room with people that don't leave immediately and it took me a really long time to understand that but then I realized that like an apostle is someone who's willing to hurt your feelings because it's it's what's best for you. Even even at the risk of hurting your feelings, they're they're willing to tell you these things cuz it's what's best. I always say I know there's an apostle in my life when I have this reaction. If someone tells me something and I'm not ready to hear it and I have these four reactions which is screw them, I'm the worst, they're probably right, but it's too late. Fine, I'll do it. Like, and that's that's proven that's proven true for me. And and I found like so much of my life has not is, has been addition through subtraction. I thought that I needed to make myself. most attractive or the most intelligent or all the add all these things to myself so that I was utterly bulletproof. But instead, what I found is I had put on so many masks, so many defense mechanisms all through my teens and growing up, that it was really about getting to the root of who I was. It was about shedding these things. So now, hopefully on a good day, and it vacillates from day to day, if I'm in that place where I'm kind of okay being me, I can hear that a little bit more. Like my gut will tell me like, listen, listen to them. You don't like it and it doesn't feel good, but they're right. And I find we all have that voice. It just depends on how much subterfuge we've put in the way of it, how how deep we buried it because we're like, no, 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 but I really need this money or no, like I really need this person to like me trust me gut. Because I, I do that. I'm constantly, even now, but it, it's better now, but it was worse years ago where I was like, you know, the universe or, or karma or God or whatever you want to call it, I'd be like, listen, I know I'm on the highway of life right now, but I really need to get off this exit and go get this money. Trust me, this is going to be great for us. I'll be right back on the highway instead of like just trusting the process and letting a, a good life be the result of good living.
1: Mm, wow. What an important lesson to learn. And that changes just how you live your life from here on out. Hey guys, we're going to take a quick break, we'll be right back in just a minute.
0: And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to Quince.com/slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig.
1: And we're back. I was surprised at how tumultuous your relationship is with acting. I had no idea that it was such a love-hate relationship. And, you know, you your experience shooting Red Dawn was fascinating to me. And for those who have not seen this movie or don't know of it, it was a huge remake of another huge film. And I remember the casting process being just kind of the cream of the crop. And so you book this huge movie. And It feels almost you'd never said imposter syndrome, but it felt a little bit like that, maybe as you were describing how you felt shooting it. I think this is such an accurate description of what a lot of actors feel like when they book what they think will be the job that takes them to the next level. So can you share this experience with our listeners? Because we get a lot of acting questions on our podcast and people who want to be in the entertainment industry. And I think from the outside, it looks like it's all roses. But there's so much internally that happens to us actors, even when something positive comes our way. And I think that's what is really interesting about your experience with Red Dawn. So can you share with our listeners about that?
2: Sure. I so I'm 23. I've done this movie, The Wackness with Sir Ben Kingsley. It's sort of legitimate. It's given me a little bit of legitimacy. as like a grown up actor, and not just like the kid star, I'm not the funny fat guy anymore. I'm not the kid star. I'm like, the thing I always wanted to be, which was just an actor amongst actors. And I get offered this role to play Chris Hemsworth's brother in this movie, Red Dawn, which makes no sense. Like God bless the casting director, but I think she might want to have her eyes checked. And it just did not- Stop. It, no, I, let's be real. I mean, even if I'm nice looking, we certainly don't look like brothers. Like, <laughs> Miles Teller, I would get it. They were like, you're gonna be Miles Teller's brother. I'd be like, yeah. i said, "Timothy Timothy Chalamet. I'd be like, yeah. Chris Emsworth, maybe not as much. So, we're doing this movie, and I just was so, I was just, I, I do, I think I mentioned imposter syndrome in the book, saying like, I was so overcome by imposter syndrome that I actually let it turn me into a fraud. Because imposter syndrome is a naturally occurring thing of highly ambitious people. It's not like, it's like, Imposter syndrome is like getting upset that you're sore after a really hard workout. Like, yes, this is unavoidable for most of us. And if you were walking around popping buttons, thinking you were like the shit nonstop, like then you're probably a sociopath. Like it's natural to feel like, wow, can I rise to the occasion? What you do with that feeling and hopefully being unreactive to it or allowing it to be an asset and driving you to be more prepared and to be a better listener to the people who are, who are walking the path before you, then it can be great. But for me, I, it crippled me. And I, and I was playing this action star, which I always dreamt of playing when I was 16 and 300 pounds, like busy alphabetizing my DVDs. Like now I was given this opportunity and I just felt like I was the wrong guy and that I had to do an impression of Chris Hemsworth, who to me was like a man's man. So short of actually doing an Australian accent, I was like doing this awful impression of him. I abandoned everything that had ever worked for me, my comedy, my my humility, vulnerability. And I just put on this like fake projection of what I thought a real man was, assuming that that's what the producers wanted, totally discarding the idea that they had eyes and knew who they were casting. And maybe they cast me for all those reasons of that, I was vulnerable and comedic, but I like let go of all of that. And what proceeded was four months of hell of being so insecure, giving such a poor, poor performance. And then the best part was we finished the movie and I say in the book, it was like, it wasn't like, cause people would tell me, cause I would vent, I vented a lot. And people would say, you're crazy. You know, every actor so hard on themselves, like, the editing does magic and i was like no no i was like this isn't a question of whether i got like like an a or a b this is like i didn't finish the test in time like i failed like there's i i i only answered 8 out of the 50 questions i'm screwed there's no way this is going to be good and and then the studio mgm who made the movie went bankrupt and so now there's a movie waiting to come out but instead of it coming out a year from when we finish, like normal movies, it's three years. And I'm just like, oh, my God.
1: What torture. That's such torture. It's such
2: torture. I'm like, oh, my God. Like, but it's already circulated in the business. Like, oh, Peck totally nosedived this one. So it's like I, it's already hurting me. But it's hurting me professionally. But now I'm like, it's three years of like when the public sees this, I'll die. Like I'm going to expire. Like it's going to come out on a Friday and Saturday morning, I won't wake up. Like I know it, like my ego can't handle it. And I learned a lot. I learned a lot. I survived, but barely.
1: (laughs) You survived it. it, No, it came out and it wasn't, you know, was it what you wanted it to be? No. But did you die? No. So it's one of those things where you move on and it is okay. And now. And
2: not to mention, weirdly, people like will tell me, like, especially people in the service will be like, I love that movie. You shouldn't talk such shit about it. And I'm like, I'm not talking shit about the movie. I'm talking shit about me. They're like, even you weren't that bad. And I'm like,
1: thanks. (laughs) I'll take it. But see, (laughs) now talk about moving on. I mean, You're working with Christopher Nolan now, which is probably the utmost or one of the top directors in Oppenheimer. And what's that experience like? Because the truth is the world does continue spinning. You book another job. Everything is fantastic. And not only did you book another huge film, but this is this is one of the huge movies that will come out next year or the year after that we'll all see you in. So no pressure, Josh.
2: Thanks. No pressure. I guys, I'm going to say it here now. I'm I have a very small part. Uh, I'm an extremely small part of a very impressive movie and cast. But you know, to your point, right? Like, I end the book talking about how it basically from when I did Red Dawn at 23 to then being like 33, 10 years later, it took me, you know, getting married, having a kid, growing up emotionally discarding a lot of these painful things throughout my life, really facing the, the inside stuff. And then also recommitting to acting class and like deciding that if I'm really gonna go for this thing, I have to be willing to, to really bare my soul and say like, am I good enough? And let go of a lot of bad habits that I had accrued over the years. And so that was like a good 10 year process. And I end the book after three years of really not working much as an actor getting this huge job that was really it wasn't about the job it was a, it was this culmination of all this inner work that I had done that it seemed to have set me up to really get this great thing which was the show Turner and Hoots that I did on Disney plus last year and I was you know playing TVs low rent Tom Hanks it was it was great you know and
1: to be anything Tom Hanks is great
2: <laughs> I'll take it I've met him (laughs) once, and he's incredibly lovely. It's not fair. I'm like, you can't be this talented and this nice. But Hemsworth is the same way. So I don't know. It's weird. They must hang out in the same circles. But but then you know when I started. But that show got canceled. And like, and I say it in the book. I was like, by the time this book comes out, this show might be the biggest thing, or canceled, or just somewhere in the middle. But it doesn't matter. And people would bring bring it up to me in podcasts. They'd be like, well, it got canceled. So what do you think about the ending of your book? And I'm like, it doesn't, it wasn't about the job. It was the culmination of all this work and like, and to your point, like, or I could end it on Oppenheimer, right? Like, but then I booked up, you know, like, but that this is life, right? And I'm sure there's more canceled stuff in my future and maybe more wins. It, it's life.
1: Well, and that's the point of the book, too, is that you realized for the first time that it really isn't about what you're working on. It isn't about, you know, whether the show's canceled or the biggest success, that you figured out this, the key to life and finding your happiness and loving yourself and knowing who you are. I I mean, you share a lot about how long it took to love little Josh, you know, little and even in one of your social media posts, you post a photo of yourself and then a photo of you back when you were in your overweight phase of life. And you said this guy wrote a book about this guy and it's how much it took to love him. And so how do you now view yourself and what would you say to little Josh if you could say one thing to him, knowing where you are in life and how not just career wise, but how you found success within and happiness, which really, it sounds so cheesy, but it is true. Like once you find what makes you happy and what makes your world spin, you can just kind of revolve around that. And then no matter what happens work-wise, you know who you are.
2: It's a great question. I, You know, I, I talk about in the book how for, for such a long time, I wanted to, to erase my origin story. And I talk about me as a kid in the third person, which is odd, except it it just seemed for my life, had become so disciplined and was sort of like the picture of, you know, recovery in some respects and like working hard and keeping the weight off and recommitting myself to acting or whatever it was. And it was like, I had manifested this life that I had dreamt of. And I would look at that kid and go like, well, that's a picture of lack of willpower and lack of self-control and, and he solidified himself in, I, I also felt like, oh, like I'm, I'm constantly at this uphill battle even still because I solidified myself in that way. So most people view me as that. And what it took was me realizing like that kid had to be so much stronger than I have to be today. And he wasn't equipped, you know, like he didn't have the tools that I have. Today, never mind, he just, you know, at 13, who has the brain to be able to sort of navigate those things. Like, we're all in a bit of fight or flight, like, you know, just sort of self preservation mode at that age, doing the very best that, that we can. And so, like, it, it allowed me to really, like, love, I, I was able to love this kid because I love my life today. I think that's the big the big part of it. And so if you're having, you know, issues or, you know, reconciling sort of your, your past, and I don't, I'm not commenting on other people's experience or trauma because everyone's experience is different than mine, but I would say, you know, loving yourself today is very indicative of being able to love your past self. And I, you know, I just knew, and it sounds trite and corny, but it's like, I couldn't be here today without that kid. Like, and if I had, you know, been able to teleport and at 15 and said, you know, to my 15 year old self and said, dude, one day we're going to play John Stamos's son in a TV show. Like, it's going to work out like a it would have either changed some course of my life. But also, I don't think I would have been capable of hearing that at 15, you know, like it's so it's sort of so I always want to, like, give people. or I don't want to say I always want to give, but if anyone's ever, especially with the weight stuff, people would be like, do you have any advice? Cause I know everyone wants a hack. Like, cause I wanted a hack, you know? I didn't want to just hear like, oh, just I eat a little less and work out a little bit more. Like I was like, no, 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 you don't understand. But what I always say is, is that like, if you're in a place where you're just feeling utterly over, over it and you're sick and tired of being sick and tired and your way has gotten you to a place where you just feel hopeless, then I would say, I'm sorry you're going through that, but it's a great place to start because I never learned anything on a good day and pain has been a great motivator in my life. So if you're in that place, I'd say you are perfectly poised to take a step out of that and to try something new.
1: Josh, thank you for not only writing this awesome memoir that's truly entertaining. Happy People Are Annoying is available anywhere you can get books. It's also available on Audible. I highly recommend hearing Josh with his S's uh, <laughs> go go through this lovely life story. And you just are full of, uh, God, yeah, you know what? It sounds cheesy. I was going to say the word inspiration, but it's true. You are. You really are inspiring and so lovely. Thank you for joining us today and taking us through your wonderful life story story. And I really wish you the best. And I know we we are not only going to see you in lovely movies, but we are going to see you everywhere on social media, everything. And we can't wait for what's next.
2: Oh, I so appreciate you having me. You're awesome at this. And, and I love chatting with you. Thank you.
1: Direction You know, I relate to Josh Peck in so many ways because some of my life has been in the spotlight for a really long time and I really respect him and him being able to open up about what it's really like. And his recovery story alone is truly compelling. I know we asked a few questions and he went in detail with us but if you have a chance to pick up the book the amount of detail he goes into and he is so raw and honest and and real Uh, specifically in this part of the book i really commend him. And I am such I was a fan before this interview. And now I'm a huge fan. So Josh, thank you so much for joining us. I really hope you guys have learned so much from his story. And I hope he comes out with another book in maybe 10 to 20 years because he's really good at this. And once again, I highly recommend Audible because Josh is an entertainer and he tells the jokes really well. And it's a really wonderful, immersive experience. Make sure you check out his book. Happy People Are Annoying, available wherever books are sold. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Directionally Challenged as much as I did. Uh, We have another great one coming for you next week. And until then, take care. We'll see you then. Directionally Challenged is a production of Pineapple Productions. Produced by Melissa D. Mons. Edited by Diane King. Post-production sound by Chris Henry. Music by Joe King. And advertising partnership with Acast.